researchers observed that the children who were the most successful in making it to the end, the ones who actually received the reward, they all had something in common. They did not rely on willpower because we see that the route to successful delayed gratification is not through sheer willpower. The hyper-focus on the goal itself actually demotivates you. Focusing on the goal too much makes you less likely to actually want to do it. Welcome to the Happy Healthy Human Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Levitin. What do the happiest, healthiest humans all have in common? They are students of success. And my mission to help both you and I become the happiest, healthiest humans we can be, I have studied success at all levels. And after spending over a decade working in the field of human development and flourishing, I can tell you with certainty, success leaves clues. On this show, I investigate and explore the common clues and foundational principles that tie together success in all areas of life. Whether it's happiness, health, wealth, relationships, it's all a part of the human experience. By following these success clues and understanding the underlying success principles, you will find that success is not simply a possibility, it's guaranteed. Every Tuesday, I give you simple, straightforward action steps and tools using these clues and principles of success to help you become the happiest, healthiest human you can be. Today's success clue is celebrating marshmallows. You're a student of success. That's obvious. That's why you're here. You're on a quest for knowledge. I mean, you're listening to this when you could be jamming out to some new music or listening to the newest true crime murder porn podcast, but you're here. You're trying to better yourself, trying to learn. And when it comes to learning, a lot of times we look to our elders. We look for mentors, coaches. We look for people who have gone through life, who have wisdom to share from their lived experience. And that's great. Pretty much all of the answers you need for whatever you're trying to accomplish can be found in someone's biography or in some conversation or interview, maybe even on this show. And, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. No need for you to go out and try to reinvent the wheel. No need for you to try to find all of the answers on your own when someone else has already done the heavy lifting for you. Warren Buffett famously said, it's good to learn from your mistakes. It's better to learn from the mistakes of others. That's how you start to cut down on the learning curve. And it doesn't just have to be some ultra successful entrepreneurs or ex-presidents or investors who you can gain knowledge and insight from. Just by the virtue of living life, everyone has something worthwhile to share. So go talk to your grandparents. Talk to the older person in your office who you usually don't chat with because they aren't up on the newest Netflix show that you're binging. If you want extra karma along with your quest for growth, maybe try volunteering at your local senior center or old age home. You'd be surprised and potentially saddened at the amount of wisdom sitting lonely without any friends or family around to share it with. I mean, in your quest to be a happy, healthy, successful human, who could be better to seek to learn from than the wise elders among us? Well, what about grade schoolers? Yeah, it's logical to think of learning from the people who have done more, seen more, lived more than us. And there's 
obviously a lot to be learned there. It's smart to study what others have done so you can learn what works and potentially what doesn't. And logically, we look ahead to those who have gone before us. But maybe we can gain also from looking back. So what could you possibly learn from children about crafting a successful, happy, healthy life? Well, it turns out a lot. Children, although they don't realize it, represent a wealth of information around understanding human nature and understanding why you do what you do and why you are the way that you are. Because children are innocent and pure. And that's not just a nice euphemism that speaks to the goodness we all have inside of us when we're young, but it's really an important piece of the overall puzzle in understanding how you can build your happy, healthy life. And that's because children have not been molded or swayed or shaped by society yet. Children are closer to the animalistic nature that's inside of all of us because we all have natural human inclinations. We talk about this all the time. We have a negativity bias, a fear of failure. We have perfectionism, aversion to change, lots of stuff. We have attractions, proclivities, likes, dislikes, feelings, emotions, all of these things that make us human. And as you grow up, you're raised and you're molded by your caregivers. You spend time with the people around you, teachers, grandparents, aunts, uncles. You start to conform to societal norms. You start to shape the persona that you will present to the world. And you start to grow to become you. So studying children can be illuminating because it can show us how our brains work and how humans would make decisions before some of that indoctrination happens. Now, obviously, this is to be taken with a grain of salt since as we age, we also learn, our brains grow, we get better tools, we equip ourselves better, and we understand more complex problems and situations. Sure, you aren't an adult making a decision with a child's brain. I get that. But the point is, we can learn a lot about human nature by looking at younger people. And this isn't just my random assertion. Psychologists study people of all ages, from newborns, infants, through early childhood development, grade school, high school, college. So I want to discuss two studies where they studied grade school children that I've come across that can help you better understand yourself and why you do what you do. That way, hopefully, you can be in better control of your actions and move more seamlessly along the road to success. That's the goal here, right? So the first study I want to talk about is one there's a good chance you might be familiar with, which is commonly known as the marshmallow experiment. And I say you might be familiar with it because it's pretty famous. It's been brought up a lot of times on this show in past episodes. It gets talked about in the real world, in books, podcasts, TED Talks. But just in case you aren't familiar, I'll sum it up quickly. In 1970, a Stanford psychologist named Walter Michel took a group of children into a room one by one. And in the room, there was a treat on a table. The original test, that treat, was actually pretzels and animal crackers, and it wasn't actually until the second iteration of the experiment when they repeated it that the famous marshmallows were brought in, but I'll get to that in a second. So the children were basically told, you can have the snack in front of you now. 
whether it's the pretzels, the animal crackers, whatever it was. Or you can wait 15 minutes and you can get twice that amount. So double the pretzels, double the animal crackers. And then the experimenter left the room and secretly observed the children. And this experiment is cited a lot when discussing delayed gratification. That's what this experiment was all about. Could the children put off the instant gratification of having the tasty treat that was immediately in front of them in exchange for a greater payoff down the road? That's the definition of delayed gratification. But the real interesting part of the study and why it became so famous actually came after the study was completed because the experimenters followed the students and kept tabs on them from years to come. And they discovered that the children who held off and waited for the larger reward, who delayed gratification, who got the double snack, they were found to have greater success later in life. They had better grades, better SAT scores. They got into better colleges. They even had better indicators of health, like body weight and BMI. So ever since then, these results have been used to emphasize the importance of being able to delay gratification. Because taking what is immediately gratifying, what's right there in front of you, is usually a surefire recipe to all the things that we don't want in life. And just about everything that you're searching for lies on the other side of being able to delay gratification. Again, this gets talked about a lot, so probably already knew that. But going back to the original experiment, Michel and his colleagues theorized that having the reward visible in plain sight, meaning having the snacks right on the table while, while the kids were waiting, that that would serve as motivation to get the reward, meaning it would increase the probability that the children would be able to abstain from the immediate rewards. As the logic basically went, if you tell the kids, hey, wait a while and you'll get a treat, that's one thing. But if you literally sit them down and put the treat right in front of them on the table and say, this is what you will get if you hold out for just a few more minutes, then that would produce better results. They'd be able to concentrate better on the reward that was right in front of them. Well, it turned out they were wrong, and most of the children would not. The hypothesis they had proposed was completely wrong. Instead of the rewards acting as a cue to remind the children about the possible benefit they could get from delaying, instead the rewards acted to increase the children's frustration and ultimately decreased the amount of time they were able to delay gratification for. Basically, the results showed that not thinking about a reward enhances the ability to delay gratification rather than focusing your attention on the future reward, meaning that it is the focus on the reward itself that brought up a discrepancy between what the, ki the children had and what they wanted. That discrepancy led to discomfort, and it whittled down their willpower to the point where they would give in. And hopefully, you're starting to see why this can be important for you. Because for most people, when it comes to setting goals, they think of the achievement of the goal, that is the reward. Right? We can use those interchangeably. Achievement of the goal is the reward. Because if you want to lose weight as an adult, you're probably not going to get a prize at the end. The point is the weight loss. But now if you look at this study, you can see that if you simply focus on the end goal, you focus on the result, which is the reward, 
while it seems like that could be ideal, actually, that just highlights the gap between where you are now and how far you have to go. So if you're looking at your bank account and just seething in frustration that you aren't saving enough money, and then all of a sudden you're at Starbucks spending money you don't even have on something you don't even need, well, that doesn't make much sense. Why would you see the goal so clearly, which is saving money, and then take actions directly counter to that goal? Spending money on a frappa wappa ding dong cappuccino at Starbucks. Well, if you look at things through the lens that we see from Michelle and his colleagues, you can start to see it more clearly. You see that the hyper-focus on the goal itself actually demotivates you. Focusing on the goal too much makes you less likely to actually want to do it. So that's the first point, but we'll come back to that. And again, I, as I mentioned, that was the original time they did this experiment in 1970. The, the original experiment, like I said, took place with animal crackers and pretzels. But they repeated the experiment in 1972, and that's the second time they used the marshmallow. And the reason they followed up on the first round of the experiment was because the first round they learned that having the reward readily available was actually demotivating, like I just explained. And now they set up the second round of the experiment to see how different strategies helped or hindered the children in their pursuit to delay gratification. Basically, they knew that whatever the second thing was, the double marshmallows, the double animal crackers, that was more appealing. That's the whole point. You, if, if offered one marshmallow or two marshmallows, a kid would choose two marshmallows. So all things being equal, they would prefer the double snack. And yet, the kids who focused on getting the double snack, ironically, did not get it. And now, they also understood that kids didn't just choose the instant gratification. It was more of a cracking under time. Some lasted 20 seconds, some two or three minutes before they gave in, some almost right up to the time limit. So in the original experiment, researchers observed that the children who were the most successful in making it to the end, the ones who actually received the reward, they all had something in common. They did not rely on willpower. Those who succeeded found ways to distract themselves. And the distraction varied, but what it meant is that successful children were ones who spent less time thinking about the reward and more time thinking about, well, basically anything else. Here's a quote directly from Walter Michel and the study results. He said, Some children covered their eyes with their hands. They rested their head in their arms and found other similar techniques for averting their eyes from the reward objects. Many seemed to try to reduce the frustration of delay of reward by generating their own diversions. They talked to themselves, sang, invented games with their hands and feet, and even tried to fall asleep while waiting, as one successfully did. So the second round of the experiment, the true marshmallow experiment, where they're actually using marshmallows, they wanted to find out what were the strategies used by children who successfully delayed gratification? Were some strategies better than other in allowing them to succeed? And that's where it got really interesting. So they set up multiple experiment conditions. All had the same ask. Sit down, marshmallows in front of you. You can eat one now, or you can wait, and you can get two. But some children got just that. Sit at the table, wait. But then in the other experiment, group, some children got toys and games. 
So they were told, sit and wait, but here's some toys and games you can play with in the meantime. And then some children were told to sit and wait, but they weren't given toys and games, but they were instructed to distract themselves by using their imagination. So again, three groups. One just told, sit and wait. One told, sit and wait, but here's some toys. One told, sit and wait, but try to distract yourself. And the experiment found that the children who tried to just sit and wait, who just tried to abstain while watching the clock tick, they crumbled the fastest. And the ones who actually were successful were the ones who found ways to distract themselves. But interestingly, there was very little difference between the kids who had toys and games to play with to distract them and those who just used their thoughts or imagination. So the second study actually had almost identical observations as the first. And here's another quote from the researchers when they are discussing what they observed in the students who successfully delayed gratification. They said, they made up songs. They hid their head in their arms. They pounded the floor with their feet. They fiddled playfully and teasingly with a bell. They verbalized the contingency. They prayed to the ceiling and so on. So are you noticing? It's not what many people talk about the marshmallow experiment would have you believe that the point is to say instant gratification is bad, delayed gratification is good. Again, we all probably know that instinctively. The real interesting takeaway from this is that the children who were successful did not try to face the problem head on with sheer willpower. Distracting themselves, whether it was through singing, closing their eyes, literally just turning around and facing the wall, playing with toys, telling themselves a story, they all fall into a category of something that I talk about a lot on this show and something that I've been teaching clients for over a decade. What they were doing was controlling their environment. And that might sound strange, but stick with me. Because we often think of the environment as what's around us. But is environment is everything around you and also what you're around and also what's around your mind and your thoughts. So the clutter in your house is your environment. The office that you work in is your environment. Your friends are your environment. Your self-talk is also your environment. And the physical environment these kids were in was being stuck in a room and they had a tempting treat sticking right in front of them. And that condition was outside of their control. But the internal environment was something that they could control by singing or dancing or distracting themselves or just turning around. They changed the environment away from being something that was so hyper-focused on just the prize. And now, again, this is not a true strategy. It wasn't a conscious decision that these kids made, but that's the point. Some kids just inherently erred towards bringing their mind elsewhere, and that made them spend less mental and emotional willpower thinking, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, ah, dang it, I ate it. So yeah, we can look at this study or set of studies and conclude that those who delayed gratification tended to have better outcomes later in life. That is true. However, I think that the overlooked conclusion that it's important to highlight is about the strategies we can learn to become better at delaying gratification in our lives right now. Because we see that the route to successful delayed gratification is not through sheer willpower. It's not sitting and staring at the marshmallow, listening to every tick of the clock as time goes down. Instead, it's curating your environment. It's setting yourself up for success in such a way that you aren't forced to waste all of your willpower, which is a finite resource, on resisting, so that time will pass and you'll get to the end without thinking about it. So 
That's the first experiment. I'm going to pause there for today because this was a little bit longer than I had planned. And I'm going to come back next week for the second of the two studies around what we can learn from children to become happier, healthier humans. And that's one that you don't want to miss because it comes literally from the researcher who wrote the book on mindset. And it will teach you how to train your brain to want to do hard things. So my only action step for you this week is to make sure you're subscribed and come back here next Tuesday for part two of this series. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or got value from it, you can support the show by sharing it with a friend and giving them the gift of a happier, healthier life. You can also leave a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That helps boost the show on those platforms so more people can discover it and we can all grow together. I'll see you back here every Tuesday and Thursday morning. And until then, stay happy, stay healthy.